you are a God who brings peace. This is for that specific reason that you have come into this world, that you took on flesh, was to redeem and reclaim a people that were far from you and bring us to you. And we are those people who were once far off. May we not identify as the people, of course, that we're going to be with you. But we are people indebted to you and the work that you have done. Thank you that you've included us, people who were once far off, into the family of peace. Thank you that you have included us to do your work on the mission of Jesus for your glory. Thank you for including us in that wonderful and awesome work. May we work together as one body, not as people opposed to one another, but people in, uh, in one spirit, working for one goal, and to glorify our one and true and only God. Please be with Matt as he preaches this morning. May our hearts be open to your word and to your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Thank you for your patience every Sunday when I set up the timer on my phone so I can ignore it for the next uh, 58 minutes. I'm so glad to see you this morning uh, as I open God's word and preach it to you. Um, we're coming up close to the now end of our current sermon series, which is called By Design. We've been in this for the better part of uh, several months. Um, and today we look at God's design for the church. So, so this, this sermon will go hand in hand with next week's. Uh, today, what is God's design for the church? What is the church? What has God designed the church to be? Next week, we want to look at what is God's design for what the church is about? What, what are we to do? What is the church to do? Now, this sermon series has a, like a fundamental like uh, presupposition, this beginning that we all need to get our heads wrapped around. We've said this pretty much every week, and it's this, that the universe reveals and demonstrates a very clear design, all right? This is an orderly universe, and so our universe has a clear design, which implies, therefore, rightly, that the universe has a designer. And what happens is, historically, since just about the beginning of the universe, human beings have rejected the design, and when we reject the design, we are, in a sense, essentially rejecting the designer. And when we do that, the natural fruit, the natural result is that we end up ruining and breaking and corrupting everything the designer has given us, and we end up hurting ourselves and one another. But when human beings trust the designer, when we believe in him, trust him, and live according to the design for all things that he's created, including ourselves and our relationships, everything, when we do that, all of a sudden his design becomes the path to our flourishing, the path to joy and security and approval and relationship and warmth and provision, all the things that every human being wants to, want, wants to have, is looking for and searching for. Every human being, Christian or not, everyone is seeking those things, and we were created to seek those things. We were created and built to get a hold of those things, and we were created to find them in God, the designer and his design. So I want to ask you uh, just a, a really kind of peculiar question then. When it comes to thinking about and, and questioning, like, what is the church? What is God's design for it? I want to ask you a weird kind of left-turn question. Um, what should I expect of a chair? Like, what should you expect of a chair? What's it designed for? It's designed for sitting. And there's some other things you can do with chairs that you can kind of expect, it, expect of it. You can sit on it. You can prop your feet on it. 
You can, you can put your laptop on it. You can do a whole bunch of things. In fact, when, when you want to screw in or screw out a, a light bulb, you can stand on the chair. But just how much should I expect of a chair when what I really need is a ladder or a bed? Just how displeased should I be with a chair when it doesn't serve the purpose that I need it for, especially in light of it wasn't designed to fulfill the purpose that I, I need, right? What should I expect of a dog? How much ought I expect of a good companion when what I need is a friend or, or a spouse? When we talk about the church, and it even came up today during our prayer time in pre-service, there, there are expectations that our modern American culture has on the church. What is, what is it supposed to be? What, are, what is the church supposed to be doing? What's it supposed to feel like? What's it supposed to look like? And there's expectations. Everyone's got expectations. The question is, what exactly ought we to expect the church to be or be like and do? And, and in, in pretty much every human relationship, almost every time there is a disruption, there's an argument, there's a disagreement, there's hurt feelings, what's happening underneath the hood of that machinery is unmet expectations. And inside of that is a flurry, like a cloud, a chaotic cloud of, well, should I have expect? Did you have a legitimate expectation? Because if I'm not meeting the expectation, I, you shouldn't expect that of me. We never made that promise. That isn't what this is. Or you should have expected that of me, and I did fail. Or I didn't know that, that you expected that of me. Of course I failed, right? There's unmet expectations. We as the church, if we're going to be the church, we're going to really need to know what we are supposed to be, what God says. Therefore, we've got to find out what God's design is. What should we expect? We only ought to, and we only can legitimately expect of what we, the church, are to be, if that's what God says we are to be. So, it's one big question for today. What is the church, and why does it exist? What is the church, and why does it exist? I've been taking us through this narrative, not only of the Bible, but of all of human history, this redemptive historical narrative. It's the story that is told by the entire Bible, story after story, circumstance after circumstance, prophecy after prophecy. It's all one big story that, that doesn't just cycle, but it keeps on recapitulating and rolling forward, telling one big story. That's what your Bible is. And it is four components, the story. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So let, let's go through, how, what is the church? What is God's design for it? Let's go through the story then. Let's go through the, the, the arc of the Bible. We start with creation. God created human beings to be his people. People who know him. People who love him. People who dwell with him. And as those people enjoy him, God is glorified. And because of that, everything and everyone flourishes. That was God's design in creating human beings in the beginning. That's where the story starts. Why do people have children? Why do people have children? All right, we know the biological processes of, of sex, okay? So I'm not asking, where do babies come from? No, right? I'm, I'm asking, why? Why do people try to make kids? Why do people want to make kids? Many women throughout history have expressed, some of you have expressed this, you felt this, women, you've ex expressed and felt a, a, an, a pain 
a longing, a physical and spiritual longing to bear children. Many men as well have experienced deep longings, not simply for the pleasure of being with a woman, but deep longings to what? To be fathers, to have children. Why? Why do human beings experience that? It's, for, it's because it's the same reason that God made humanity. We have that same desire that God has because God made us. He made us to be like him. We bear his image. We bear his spiritual, mental, and emotional likeness. And so we, so we covered, did, didn't we? We covered in the, in the first few weeks of the sermon series, God's design for humanity. Like, so I established in that message, God designed and he created us to be an extension, an expression of his own self, of his character. God designed every human being to be an extension, an expression, an outward expression of his own Trinitarian love for himself. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the natural outflow, the natural outcome of his love within his three-person self is, well, naturally, he's going to make kids. He's going to make people. That's the result of his love. In the purest, most perfect sense, God created humanity as the natural overflow of love. So just like a husband and wife then, as an overflow of their love for one another, they say, let's make a family. Let's make more of us, right? Now, now parents naturally want their children to live with them, at least for a certain amount of time. Sometimes you're, maybe you're dissuading yourself, I don't want to live with these kids anymore, okay? But naturally, generally, parents want their children to live with them, at least for a time. And, and then even after 18 years or so, the vast majority of parents would be very happy, they'd be very pleased if their adult children established their own lives nearby. Maybe not next door, maybe not in the same neighborhood, but like a lot of parents want their grown kids to live nearby. We want to dwell near one another. We want to live near one another. Well, look what happens. God creates Adam and Eve to be his people. His people. His beloved, glorious image bearers. And he created them so they would dwell with him. They, they would enjoy one another. And as they enjoy God, they would start their lives and start their families and their families' families. Enjoy inventing, creating, establishing, ordering, organizing, cultivating this whole universe that God made. God designed the church to dwell with his people. That's, that's the why. Why did God create the church? We haven't even gotten into what it is. Just saying, what it, why did God create the church? Why did he establish it? He established it because he wanted to establish a people with whom he would dwell. Now, that's, that's really not the answer to the what question, though, is it? See, God didn't, and here's why. God didn't create Adam and Eve and say, you are my church. He didn't say that to them. God didn't say, you are my church. Now, go make some kids and put them through a membership class. And make sure to get your 501c3 paperwork turned into the IRS so you can be a real church, okay? Nonprofit. He didn't say that to Adam and Eve. No. But that's not because this thing called the church was never part of God's plan. He didn't say that to Adam and Eve because the church as we know it wasn't his first step in his plan and his purpose for his people. It wasn't his first step, but it was always part of his plan. So that's, that's creation, establishing the beginnings, the origin of the church. Humanity is meant to be God's church, his dwelling with people. Now, what happens after creation? Creation and then what? The fall. 
Genesis chapter 3, humanity falls into sin. So Adam and Eve, they depart from God. He's robbed of glory. They rob themselves of joy. Everything is poisoned. Everything's contaminated with sin. Everything is defiled by destructive sin. And man no longer dwells with God. In Genesis chapter 3, man no, no longer dwells with God. I, w- I want you to read this with me at the be- on, up on the, screen, on the screen. Genesis chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, he made them garments of skins and clothed them. This is after they have sinned. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve have sinned, they've rebelled against God, they've chosen to reject the design, and therefore the designer, they've rejected God's design for their identities, their purposes, their lives, they've trusted the lies of the serpent over the truths of God, and after that, God then questions them, and he gets them to basically fess up, and then the first thing God does is he curses them, and he curses the earth. Now, what that means is, God simply has a sit-down. He has a real talk with Adam and Eve, as well as Satan. He goes, okay, so this is what you've done. Now let me explain to you the natural outcome, the natural fruit. What's, let me, I'm going to now explain to you what's going to happen next, the natural consequences of what you've done. You've ruined our relationship, me and you. You've, ru- you've, you're, you've ruined your relationship, husband and wife and all humans, and, and you've ruined the created world, and the, you've ruined the created order that I gave to you to steward and be in charge of. Now none of it's going to work right. And then he tells them, after that, he goes, let me, I've now explained the curse to you. Now let me tell you something else. He, he tells them that he's already got a plan in place. He, he tells them that he's already prepared to do something about them. He gives them this prophetic hint about a special person who is someday going to show up and set everything back to rightness, right? He tells, the, he tells them, a, a seed of the woman, there's a man that's going to come, day, come someday, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bite his heel, but the serpent's, serpent's going to be crushed. That's just the prophetic hint of this very important person. Now, in verse 21 of that passage we just read, I want you to see two things. First is in verse 21. Look, what's interesting. In verse 21, what does God do? He makes some clothes for Adam and Eve out of some animal skins. Now, they were created, they were designed and created naked, and they were unashamed. Nothing wrong with being naked. Nothing, being, nothing to be embarrassed about being naked, right? Why? Because they're sinless. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's, their bodies are perfect. Their minds are perfect. Their heart, everything's, so it's perfectly great to be naked. But now that they're sinful, they are therefore now also shameful. They are embarrassed. Don't look at me unclothed. I'm vulnerable. I can't trust you. I don't trust me. I'm naked. I need to be covered. And look what happens. Instead of killing Adam and Eve for their sin, God kills someone else. Who? The animals. That's where the skin came from. He kills animals instead of Adam and Eve. Instead of leaving Adam and Eve humiliated, In shame, he covers their shame with the skins of the animals that he sacrificed. 
The animals didn't do anything wrong. The animals didn't do anything. They weren't, they, didn't, they weren't the ones who fell into sin. They were sinned against by Adam and Eve, who were their stewards, their, their bosses, their owners, their masters. But they died in the place of Adam and Eve, and their sinlessness covers Adam and Eve. And then, what do you see in verses 22 through 24? God says that they can't live where he lives. They can't stay in a place of perfection. They can't stay in the place that was made for eternal life. They can't stay there. Now listen, this isn't simply a punishment. This isn't simply a, I'm really ticked at you, and your punishment is, I'm evicting you. You can't stay in a good place. You've got to go out there where it's cold and yucky, and, and there's saber-toothed tigers and, and bad stuff, right? No, this isn't simply a punishment. He's not merely kicking them out of the house and disowning them. This is a painful but loving and merciful decision that God makes. This is God's mercy. It's hard, but he's merciful. How is that so? How is this loving? Here's why. Because in his heart, God is essentially saying that he doesn't want humanity doomed to live forever by eating of the tree of life. He doesn't want them to live forever in their sinful, broken, corrupted, suffering, shameful state. Now that they are the way they are, I don't want them to live forever. If I let them eat of the tree of life, if I let them stay in the place of perfection and eternal life, they'd be this way forever. I'm not going to let them stay like this forever. I'm the uh-uh. And the way to solve this is not to let them live forever like this. Uh-uh. He doesn't want humanity to suffer even more guilt and shame by letting them further, the, further corrupt the place that God is. For, to live forever in a way that their shame and their guilt and their sin lasts forever. Forever corrupting. He doesn't want to do that to them. He doesn't want that let that happen to them. So here's what God does. He sends them out. He separates the dwelling place of God from the dwelling place of man. The supernatural and the spiritual divide between God and man is, is represented by this powerful angelic being. It's got a flaming sword. Now there is no way to get to God without dying. And even if you die, you can't get to him. Because spiritually, your sin separates you from him and his place, his presence. Pastor Matt, you still haven't told us what the church is. Okay, let's talk redemption. That's the next step in the story. It's the next thing that happens in the story, redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, I already told you that God tells them, I've, got, I've already got a plan worked out for what you've done and what I'm, what I'm, what I'm going what to do about this. In, in uh, theologi theologian terms, sorry, it's a fancy uh, uh, Bible Jeopardy word, this, this word is proto-evangelion. This is the proto-gospel, the, the first prophetic hint, the first flash of the gospel. You get that in Genesis 3, where he talks about this person he's going to send someday to make everything right. So God establishes, even right there on the heels of the fall, God establishes a redemptive plan to restore his people to himself, because God... His purpose and his design was always to establish, to, to design, to create and establish people who will dwell with him, and he will dwell with them, and they will enjoy one another, and he'll be glorified, and everything will work right. So from Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus and his church, God has and always has been choosing and calling and establishing and preserving what 1 Peter chapter 2 calls a people for his own possession. From Adam and Eve, the minute he's kicking them out of the garden, he is already working that plan. Choosing, calling, establishing, and preserving 
a people for his own possession, people he will dwell with, and they will dwell with him. He establishes a family through Adam. He establishes a tribe through Abraham, a nation through Moses, a kingdom through David, and then he establishes his church through Jesus, onward through with the apostles. So from the very beginning, God's been planning, preparing, planting, preserving. Who? A people. Not a what? A a people. The who? Not Not the British band. So throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, God uses different terms. He uses a diverse array of of analogies and metaphors to describe and explain what his people are to him and what they're meant to be and do, right? But, But I don't want you to miss this. The pinnacle, the very tip top, the pinnacle of God's destined plan and purpose is to have a people, his people, just like he originally designed. From from the beginning of human history, through the fall, all the way through, all the development of all human history, all cultures, all nations, all wars, all circumstances, all times and places, the pinnacle, the, 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 the pointy end of the spear that he's trying to get at is to get, a, is to get his people. I have a people, my people, and I will dwell with them. They're going to dwell with me. How can I justify? That's, that, that ought to strike all of you, but at least some of you, if you're paying attention, it ought to strike you as kind of grandiose, maybe a bit brash or arrogant for me to say, say that of all the things in the Bible, this is the pinnacle? Pastor Matt, you found the pinnacle of God's all the, thing, all the things that God has planned since the beginning? This is who, who put you in charge to be able to make that claim, to identify this as the pinnacle of God's plan. No one put me in charge of that. No one put me in charge of that. And I'm not the one who decided that that's the pinnacle. I... I, I I deliver the mail, I don't write it. So let me take you to the Bible. God, who has the authority to say that this is the pinnacle of his plan. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, this is the beginning, this is the initiation of the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity, the eternal, everlasting life kingdom of God, his people, and the whole renewed universe. Revelation 21 is when it starts. And this is how he announces it. And I, John, the Apostle John, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Whose voice would that be? God's. He's the only one allowed to be on that chair. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold. When God says behold from the throne, that's everybody. Listen up. That's not, uh, all right, good morning. If you would please come and take your seat into the church. We're about to begin. I'm going to read the scriptures and people are still getting coffee and chit-chatting. We can kind of get in here. By the way, I'm not calling anyone out. I'm just, that's not the way God is talking. all of us have met some person who, for some reason, they just have the thing that when they go, hey, just everyone just shuts up. When they, like when the dad or your uncle, your grandpa, when they whistled and like everyone stopped, right? Cows stopped, planes in the air, whoa, grandpa's talking, right? God says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the announcement at the initiation of the eternal kingdom and renewed universe. That reality is where God has been taking the world of human beings, not just from Genesis chapter 3, but all the way back when he was scooping dirt up to craft Adam, all the way back to when he was fabricating and crafting Eve from Adam's flesh. 
God designed the church to dwell with his people. But here's the, here's, here's the, the problem hasn't been fully solved, at least not yet. God, God can't and he won't have these people. Can you, are you saying God can't do something? Yeah, I'm saying God can't do something. What things can't God do? Things that by his own law, of his own character, he says he will not do. If he can do something he says he will not do, then he's not God. And he is not self-contradictory. He is completely rational, logical, truthful, and and in line with himself and his own rules, by his own justice and his own perfect standards. God can't have those people, not in the Revelation 21 way. That can't happen. Why? Because of Genesis 3, because of the fall. They can't live. No human being can live with him in perfection because no human being is perfect and sinless the way he designed us to be. So then what's God to do? How is he going to work this out? How is he going to set it right? Well, it's in the story, and it's all over the place throughout the whole Bible. From the moment God is clothing Adam and Eve in the skins of sacrificed animals to God saving Noah and his family, preserving the whole human race from the devastating judging flood through his ark, the boat. From choosing Abraham, or choosing Abram, and establishing a human family through Abram's line, through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, through the times of Moses in which he is the rescuing shepherd, through the Passover in which God preserves his Hebrew people by the blood of lambs on the doorposts, through separating the waters of the Red Sea, which divided the Israelites from the land of death, Egypt, and the land of promise and their life. From every chapter and every page, every prophecy, every story, every circumstance, every person, God has been foreshadowing and preparing the way for mankind to be able to dwell with him once again. And every single person, prophecy, proverb, promise, story, moment is leading the way, preparing the way, and pointing to the one way that man can finally dwell with God as we were intended to, and God gets what he wants. And that way has a name. The guy with the name says he's actually the way. Who is the way? What is this way? He says, hey, I'm the way. Jesus. Jesus has multiple names, by the way. I just want to point out two of them because I think they're relevant in a moment. Jesus. This is a Greek and now anglicized, an English-sized version of the Hebrew name. Anyone know? Joshua. In his times, he would have, they would have called Jesus, they, they would have called him Yeshua, which is how Hebrews pronounce the name Joshua. Do you know what in Hebrew Jesus' name means? It means God saves, God rescues. God saves and God rescues. Do you know why? Because he's also got another name by which God actually sends an, a supernatural, spiritual, angelic person to go ahead and say, by the way, you're also going to name him something else. Anyone know what his other name is? Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us, God living and dwelling with us. 
And Jesus can't fulfill that second name unless he's Jesus, Joshua, the one who saves and rescues, the one who redeems. He saves and rescues and redeems you from your sin so that, as Emmanuel, God will be with you and you can be with him. It's the pinnacle of God's whole plan. God with us. Us with God. Yep, okay, Pastor Matt, you still haven't said what the church is. What is the church? In God's redemptive plan, he chose Abram. What, what did God get? When God chose Abram and made a promise to him, what did God get? God got a people, but he got a human family. God got a people of a particular genetic bloodline. True or false? That's what God got. When, when God chose and he deployed Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph, what did God get? God got a human tribe from a family. At this point now, he's got a tribe. He's got people, and they're a tribe, and that came from that, pe- from that people who are a family. When God chose Moses and he sent him into Egypt, what did God get? God got a human nation. A human nation from a tribe, from a family. When God chose David and he put him on the throne, what did God get? He got a human kingdom. He got a human kingdom that birthed from that national tribe-based family. But when God sends his own son, Jesus, Emmanuel, when Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience to God Almighty, his Father, when Jesus died the death that we deserved on our behalf, when when Jesus after laying down his own life, picks it right back up again by his own power, what does God get now? He gets the church. And that church, that people, it doesn't depend on a human family, on a human tribe, on a human nation, or a human kingdom. It depends on God himself, who saves and rescues and is now with us. God gets something not just better, but infinitely superior to a chosen family, a chosen tribe, a chosen nation, a chosen kingdom. They're all earthly. He gets a heavenly people. He gets more and better than all those things. Through Jesus, God gets for himself a people that he calls the church. These are the people I will dwell with. These are the people I dwell with. In Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10, this is, what God, this is what the Apostle John sees in heaven. It's a prophetic view and vision of God's kingdom, the people kingdom of God's supernatural kingdom, his heavenly kingdom. He says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. You, number, you, can, you can count the number of people who are in a family. You can count the number. You can take a census of a tribe, of a nation, of a kingdom. This one you can't even take a census of. And they were from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were all crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The people God gets for himself to dwell with through Jesus, they're from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Every ethnicity, every background, every socioeconomic status, and yeah, every political party. Take that CNN, Fox News, and all the people on Twitter that you like to follow or don't, don't follow, all the bad guys, all the people that send all, all the disinformation. Yeah, they say, take that. They come from every political party. 
They come from every persuasion or all the sides who had an opinion or position or an idea about masks or vaccines or Israel or Hamas. They come from every background and persuasion. And God tells us, I probably went a little far there. I, I, okay, sorry. My axe is ground. Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Please, I, I deserve an email. Um, God tells us in Revelation chapter 22 that in the kingdom of eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, his city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the kings and the leaders and the nobility and the people from every corner, from every kingdom and every nation, every tribe and tongue, they're going to enter his kingdom. You know what the church is? You don't have membership in, in the tribes of Israel? No problem. You have membership in the, the community of Jesus. You, you aren't a citizen of, of Hebrew Jerusalem? No problem. You have citizenship in Jesus' kingdom. You don't have the blood of Abraham running in your veins. You're not in his family. No problem. You have the blood of the lamb covering you. You're in his family. The church is those people. I could give you systematic theological definitions of the church. Here's how systematic theology would explain or define what the church is. The, the church is the complete body, the complete number, the complete gathering of all true Christians who have lived in all times and in all places. That's what the capital C church is. And a local church is a individual expression, a numbered organization of Christians who gather through covenant or promise or, or agree to worship God and obey him with one another under qualified leadership and they take communion and they worship him and they pray they exercise church discipline and the gospel and the Bible are preached and taught that's great I love that is that going to be good enough for you it shouldn't be good enough for you I love that I love those definitions they're very helpful they're, they're great up in here that's not really fueling much in here for me. It's probably not doing anything for you. What is the church? It's Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, you need to remember that you, you, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hand, remember that you, if you are the church, what is the church? It's the you that were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you are now brought in and near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The hostility, not just between Jew and Gentile, but the hostility between man and God. And he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross of Jesus, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, this Jesus, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... What, are, what is the church? I'll tell you what it's not. 
You are no longer strangers or aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure being joined together, it now grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of his body, the body through many, are one body, so it is with Jesus. You see, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and my daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are now fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. So the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice. He will sing over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with his loud singing. And so, you want to know what the church is? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own, his own possession, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what, that's what the church is. That's who you are. If you're way better than what you are, that's who you are. And I didn't have to come up with any of those definitions. God, God put them in his book. Every Christian is a member of God's beloved, redeemed, eternal, global people. We bear his image because we're his image-bearing humans. We, his church, we bear his grace and mercy because we're his redeemed. We bear his righteousness because we're his adopted kids. We bear his truth and his word because we're his witnesses. We bear his good news to the world because we're his ambassadors. We bear his cross and his sufferings because we are his servants and we bear his everlasting welcome and honor because he calls us friends. That's what the church is. Sneaking into next week, what is it we do? So with everything in me, I want to, as much as God will let me in this moment with real spiritual clout, I've been praying for this sermon for a bit, very fervently this morning. I want to plead with you 
I want to fervently urge you, if you are a member of this church especially, I want to fervently urge you toward something. Dare I say it? I want the courage and the spiritual freedom that can only come from God for me right this second to perhaps admonish us, to correct us, rebuke us, and reorient us, this church, our church. Don't diminish, don't insult, don't offend God by doing those things to his people, diminishing, insulting, or offending his people, his bride his home, his house, his cherished people of his own possession and dwelling. Don't disregard, don't tear down, don't divide, and don't disrespect Jesus' church. Don't ignore. Don't deny. And don't neglect. Don't neglect the priceless beauty the importance and everlasting significance of who this is. Who he is. Who, who she is. Who they are back there. All around you. Don't neglect that. Don't deny it. Don't forget it. Don't reject it. Don't, dis, don't disunify it. Don't disrespect it. Don't reduce the church, Jesus' people, don't reduce it down to an organizational, uh, down to an organization that's mainly here for your personal therapy, serving and solving your personal issues emotionally, mentally, and even spiritually, to reduce the church, and that's what the church is mainly about, and if it doesn't do it well enough for you, then you'll dip out and not before neglecting it or disrespecting it and criticizing it. Don't do that. That is an insult to Jesus and his beloved. Don't reduce a church to a community for your personal networking so you can have friendships and relational connectivity for the, for the fellowship. Why, why do you, what's, what's church about? It's for the fellowship. Don't reduce it down to that. Don't reduce the church down to a place that provides sound, moral, spiritual teaching to build up your kids or get your teenagers back on the right track. Don't do that to the church and reduce her to that. Don't reduce it down to an organization that you can join with and expect to do good things in the local community, meeting the needs of the disadvantaged or the, or the hurting or the suffering. Don't reduce the church down to that. Because what you're doing is what a wicked man or a wicked husband would do to a woman by reducing her down to her individual body parts. And now all she is is her body parts. What she is and what she has that can give to him and please him in his own limited, fallen ways. And she is not in herself fully and totally and completely valuable and precious. All of us have crossed this line in some way with our expectations, our faulty, illegitimate, limited, often ignorant, often selfish expectations of what the church is and what it's supposed to be and be like. Stop doing that. I'm chief of sinners. I don't get to preach this and say this to you unless I go, I'm chief among you. 
Yes, all those things are good, and Jesus does call every local church as his church to be and do those sorts of things, yes. But the church isn't any one of those things. It's not even a collection of those things. The church is the priceless, everlasting people of God. There's no family, there's no tribe, there's no nation, there's no kingdom, there's no organization, there's no community, there's no government more important than the church. You understand that when the people of God together in worship of God, truly worshiping, believing in faith, singing, preaching, teaching, listening, shaking hands, welcoming one another, hugging each other, asking very simple questions, how are you, saying very simple things, I am praying for you, doing very simple things like let's put it on the calendar to meet together, break bread together, pray for one another. Those things, do you understand something supernatural is supposed to occur and does occur when God's people are together? It's special. It's not just a meeting for me to talk at you a lot. There's something supernatural and eternal that this is meant to be and that we are. And so often we don't feel it. We forget it. We diminish what's happening here. I know I do. I know the worship team does. I know people in the tech booth who have to press buttons. They're fighting the temptation. They're like, get off their phone. They're like, oh, I can't look at my phone. I gotta, I'm trying to worship here, even at the tech booth. It's hard. I know. But do you agree? I want to ask, if you agree with all that I just like fervently yelled to you, do you live like you agree? What is, your actual, what is my actual life? What are our actual lives proving about what we really believe and what we really think and feel about the church, about Sunday worship with the gathered saints? What, does, what do your real actions, what does your schedule, what does your calendar tell the truth about? when it comes to weekly or daily commitment to talking with or being with or encouraging with or, or, or seeking service and help from the, the people of God. Your, your prayer life in communion with God, your prayer life in communion with God's people, your service, your sacrifice to God's people. What does your schedule look like? What does your calendar look like? What is your pocketbook? What does your checking account communicate the truth about what, what you really believe about Jesus and what he says is priceless and valuable, the pinnacle of all that he's been doing throughout all of history. What does my life really prove about what I think about that? Because all of us can agree all day long with all the stuff I said. We can all agree on that. Well, whoop-de-doo. Do we know it and do we love it? And what we do with our lives, our calendar, our schedules, our body, our time, our money, that speaks way more than what we can say with some words. The church, like, if, if all that stuff that I said is true about the church, about us, about you, about me and us, man, shouldn't it feel more exciting? I've, I've Just real talk. We'll just figure out if we're going to keep this on the podcast and the sermon recording or not. We'll just figure that out. But I just like, man, I just want our church to feel exciting again. I've heard that over and over from just individuals, and I'm just going, yeah, me too. Do you know the best way to lay hold of that excitement is to stop waiting for someone else to make it exciting? Do something exciting. And there are no easy, exciting things. There are no non-scary, exciting things. There are no non-challenging, exciting things. Even low-hanging fruit is still hanging. You've got to reach for that. You want, when a church becomes exciting, it's when those members really understand who and what they are and how 
awesome, unimaginably awesome that that is. Who I am, who what I'm, what I'm a part of, what God is, what is doing, what he's, what he's done to get this to happen for us to be even here and what he's going to do in the future with us. That person, when they get that, now the excitement's there and they start doing exciting things like inviting their friends to church, going next door, texting someone, calling someone, bringing them into their own dinner table, giving money to mission work and church planting in Guatemala or in your local neighborhood. Like just, they want the church to be exciting and they're not waiting around for other people to start making it exciting. I'll say this and it's going to sound like it's a real, real harsh rebuke from a pastor to the church. I'm, 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 I just want to preface it. I'm included in what I'm about to say. Over and over again, the experience that a church has is that all over the place, members are, they are ready for other members in the church to finally start being the kind of members that they ought to be, all while not being ready to be that very kind of member themselves. Waiting for the pastor to make it happen waiting for the leaders to make it happen, waiting for someone else who has more experience or better skills or more money or more of this, waiting on everyone else to make it happen. When you are the people, as a body and the individual parts of you, are the people God has chosen to dwell with. His spirit dwells in you and empowers you. And so the very same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he now dwells in you. He, he dwells in you with his power the exciting, awesome, priceless, unbelievable, historical, and forever into the future thing that God is doing, preparing to dwell with us and wiping away every tear and killing death and renewing the universe and making everything right again. So for any of us who have perhaps experienced maybe a season here, like maybe it's not now, but it has been, but I've experienced some church hurt. I feel neglected. I feel a little left out. I, I, want, I want to ask you, I want you to think to the times and describe in your own head right this second. Do, do it as, I, as I'm saying this. I want you to describe in your own head the times or the season in which you felt the most excitement, the most warmth, the most inclusion, the most closeness, the most value for your church. What's, what are the moments in your church life when you've gone, oh, I remember that time. I felt warm. I felt like I was on the inside. I felt like I was part of something happening. Like, I was in it, and this was real, and this was good, and man, just, oh, I want you to describe that. Be now, when you describe and think back to that season or time, before you start thinking about and describing what the other people in your church were doing or saying, I want to ask you, where were you? What were you doing? How were you living? I can almost guarantee you that the warmest moments that any of you have ever experienced with this or any other church, the best, most God-fearing, awesome, exciting, inspiring, yes, this matters. Those seasons, I can guarantee you that it was when you were remembering, embodying, and dwelling with God and dwelling with his people. And you had little concern for what you were getting, and you had more concern for what others were getting. And that's when you feel warm. Because you, that's when you're being and dwelling with God and his people as his church. That's not a 
moment where Pastor Matt used the pulpit for his own personal therapy just to get some stuff off, off his chest. I've been praying about those things and what I've just said for a few weeks now. Not out of anger or frustration, but out of a desire for inspiration, for aspiration, for waking up, for receiving grace and mercy, and recognizing and believing that it's never too late. It's always the right time to be the church, the people who God dwells with and we dwell with him, regardless of the building or the time or the mountain or the hilltop. This is us. This is us God is talking about. So when it comes to closing this sermon up with, okay, so how do we respond? What's the application? What should we do? I want to leave it real simple. I want us to pray. That's the best thing. Not the only thing, but that's the best place to start with, is to pray. And we need to ask God, we need to ask the Lord to redeem and renew our mind and our heart towards this church, that we would all receive a renewed season of love and devotion and compassion and commitment and joy for, for what Jesus loves most, for one another, for, for his people, that God would put something in your heart that you can't put there yourself. So we need to pray that we would love the church like Christ loves his own wife, his bride. We need to pray that we belong and commit to the church because it's our family. That we would serve the church because we're, we're its members. That we would enjoy God's presence because the church is his dwelling place. God dwells with us. And he's taking us to that Revelation 21. The fullness of that. God designed his church so he can dwell with his people. I'm going to pray with, with you and we'll respond in communion as worship, all right? Father, I ask that any heaviness today, Lord, would serve your purposes, would serve us. That any weight of reflection, maybe even of confession, would lead to glorious and happy safe repentance, renewal, that your people would not feel guilt or shame this morning, that I wouldn't be burdened by that because we're the people that you lifted that from and you took it on yourself and now we're the people who can dwell with you. We can enter the garden because in the garden you chose to, to drink the whole bitter cup all the way down to the bottom. So lead us, your people, in prayer. Put into our hearts and souls something we can't put there. And as we pray that, Lord, Strengthen our, our hands and our feet, our mouths, our bodies, our spirits to step up, to stand up, to reach out and take hold of what you say is already ours as your people. We pray this for our joy, for our excitement, for our passion, for our sig significance and the meaning that you have always meant to bestow upon your people. We pray it for our joy and we pray and ask it because it brings you glory and brings salvation to the lost. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. Now's our time for um, communion. We respond to the Lord in this way by taking the elements. I should just put this down. Um, 